Let's bow our heads. Father, Lord, we thank you for another day just to be alive, courtesy of your grace. And we thank you for the privilege of participating in your plan. We know very well you don't need us whatsoever, but you let us partake uh, by grace, through humility, through faith. You let us be a big part of your plan if we want to be by the power of your spirit and your word. And we thank you for this time to gather together as your children and learn more about your plan and mission for us while we're here on this earth. Father, most of all, we thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, out of heaven to become a man, to take our place once for all at the cross. We are eternally grateful and look forward to spending eternity with you because of him. We ask that you bless this message, have your spirit guide everything going on, and help us understand what you have for us today. It's in Christ's precious name we pray, by the power of your spirit. Amen. Again, the difficult passages, grace and works, part three. The spirit has been moving over the waters, so to speak, as uh, we can quote from Genesis chapter one. The things he's been revealing to us and opening up to us are, at least to say, very wonderful and fulfilling to our souls. Um, I, I've been, um, you know, just kind of overwhelmed a little bit by the things he's teaching us and opening up to us that uh, I never saw before. And these are, are very important subjects, obviously as pastor's been alluding to, especially this topic of grace and works and how that all figures out in the big picture. But the Spirit's been filling in the gaps in our souls, and He continues to do so, and we should be very grateful and never take His Spirit for granted. Amen? I mean, we can take His Spirit for granted. And He's doing things that we have no business learning in a way only from him. Some of the wonderful pieces he's been putting together for us are revealed in the quote pastor started with on Sunday. And I'd like to put uh, those up on the board again for you today. It was from J. Gresham Machen. And we'll, go, we'll just read through it and just sit back and absorb. Faith is the ex acceptance of a gift at the hands of Christ. It is a very wonderful thing. It involves a change of the whole nature of man. It involves a new hatred of sin and a new hunger and thirst after righteousness. Such a wonderful change is not the work of man. Faith itself is given by the Spirit of God. Christians never make themselves Christians, but they are made Christians by God. It is quite inconceivable that a man should be given this faith in Christ that he should accept this gift which Christ offers and still go on contentedly in sin. For the very thing which Christ offers us is salvation from sin, not only salvation from the guilt of sin, but also salvation from the power of sin. The very thing that the Christian does, therefore, is to keep the law of God. He keeps it no longer as a way of earning his salvation, for salvation has been given him freely by God. 
but he keeps it joyously as a central part of salvation itself. The faith of which Paul speaks is, as Paul himself says, a faith that works through love. And love is the fulfilling of the whole law. The faith that Paul means when he speaks of justification by faith alone is a faith that works. And this really speaks to efficacious grace once again. When God saves a person, he saves him from sin and its dominion. Rather than the believer standing before God one day to pay for his own sins, he will instead point to Christ's payment on his behalf. And that reality begins on the day of salvation in this life. At the point of humble repentance towards God and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ to save, remember Acts 20, 21, repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? At that point, a man is delivered from the lordship of sin in his life. That's what the scriptures tell us. A true believer at that point is delivered from the lordship of sin in his life, from its domination, from its slavery, or slavery to it. So the Lord, or rather the believer, is rescued from a cruel king called sin, and he's placed under the dominion of a gracious king instead, the king of righteousness, Jesus Christ. This is made clear by the Lord's statement that unless a man trusts in Jesus as the great I am, the promised Messiah and Savior, then he's going to die in his sins. That's the reality of the matter. That's the urgency of the gospel and getting it right. This person will have no way out of the slavery to sin because there is no other way out besides Jesus Christ. And the required judgment of his sins rests upon him instead of being removed. And this is one of the things the Spirit is telling us to make clear when we share the gospel with people. Turn in your Bibles to John eight nineteen. Again, this is one of the things the Spirit is telling us to make clear when we share the gospel of Jesus Christ with people that you will die in your sins if you don't repent and surrender and admit to who Jesus really is. That, that's like it's going to happen. It's inevitable. Because either you die in your sins or you can have them taken away, and there's only one way to have them taken away. In John eight nineteen, so they were saying to him, Jesus, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Why does it say that, by the way? No one had seized him because they wanted to seize him. They were very angry with him at this point because he was claiming to be God, as we'll again see. In verse 21, then he said again to them, I go away and you will seek me and will die in your sins. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews were saying, Surely he will not kill himself, will he? Since he says, Where I am going, you cannot come. 
And he was saying to them, You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And we saw the importance of this statement on Sunday on the board, that phrase, I am he. The word he is actually not in the original language of John 8.24. The original translates plainly, I am which has great Hebrew theological significance. It means Jesus was claiming to be God. If this is true, the Jews were in a quandary, for they thought Jesus was a liar. And of course, God cannot lie. Here we see Jesus reminding them in another way that their salvation is not based on the scriptures themselves or in keeping the law, but in his person by trusting Him as the Messiah, the Savior, Lord God in the flesh. That's what he's basically reminding them of in John 8, 24. So let's revisit the Old Testament for a moment and see the origin of this name of God and why the Jews wanted to kill Jesus for saying this. Go to Exodus 3, verse 13. Exodus 3, 13. And again, this is the issue in salvation. Not do you believe, but what do you believe about Jesus in particular? As Jesus said to the apostles, who do you say that I am? Michael and I put this to the test last night in the homeless park. Uh, it, it went great uh, using this line of questioning, if you will. And you'd be surprised what people believe. And we asked three different people who they thought Jesus really was. And we received three different answers last night. One said Lord and Savior, which was good to hear. Uh, one wasn't sure if he was God. And the other one said he did not believe that Jesus was the Son of God. He believed in God, but not that Jesus was the Son of God. But that question opened up the door to plant some seeds about one of the primary issues in salvation. Who do you think Jesus really is? Do you trust in him as your Lord and your Savior? Or just a good guy to follow? And Jesus claimed to be the great I Am of the Old Testament. And that was shared as well because of that question. Look at Exodus 3.13. Then Moses said to God, Behold, I'm going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So in John chapter 8, Jesus was clearly claiming that he was Jehovah God in the flesh, the promised Messiah and King. And this is the quote-unquote Lord part in salvation, believing in him as Lord and Savior. Lord means God. In the book of Hebrews, 
we see another message delivered, especially to the unbelieving religious Jews who refuse to accept Jesus Christ for who he really is. Go to Hebrews 10, verse 26. As much as the Jews knew the Old Testament scriptures, the problem was they denied giving Jesus the proper credit for who he was. Hebrews 10, 26. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Now, just as a reminder, this is talking about no more animal sacrifices being able to pay for sins anymore because Jesus has now come. Okay? We're in the New Testament book of Hebrews, right? So he's saying, you know, if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there's no longer, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of of grace. The Spirit is convicting the world about Jesus Christ so they can properly and from the heart answer Jesus' question correctly. Who do you say that I am? The Spirit's doing His work. There's a lot of people not listening, a lot of people that are arrogant and stubborn and pick and choose what they believe. But go to Matthew 16, verse 13. And we see Jesus reveal how important this issue is in salvation itself, even. Matthew 16, 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, Who do you say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah but still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. A primary issue in salvation, folks. There's a lot of opinions on who Jesus is as illustrated in verse 14. But the people were floundering about, not willing to give Jesus the proper credit for who he was and who he even claimed to be. Go back to John eight twenty four. I mean, Jesus constantly made an issue of his deity. And that's part of the, the promise of the Messiah from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God said, I will save my people. I will save my people. You know, he didn't just say, I'm going to send somebody. In John eight twenty four, Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am 
you will die in your sins. So hopefully this passage has much more meaning to you now. In John 8, 28, look at verse 28. So Jesus said, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am, that I am. And I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. So there we see again that real salvation results in something real. Jesus is giving a qualifier, if you will. If, if, you, ha if you really have believed in me, you will continue in my word. You'll follow me. My sheep hear my voice. They know my voice, and they follow me. God's work never ends up vain or empty. It's never powerless or unsuccessful. When God changes someone through faith in Christ, he gives them something eternal, a new nature that will last. And one evidence of that is that believers will continue in his word, proving they are disciples of his. Sticking with scripture in context, we've seen this concept again and again that true believers will be seen by their fruits. And that's a thing to celebrate, folks. That's like celebrating His grace and the power of His grace. A true believer will be seen by their works. Why? Because they're changed. They've been made new. They now have the Spirit of God in them, and God's grace is working on their behalf now, as promised. And it can't be impotent. It can't be weak. It can't be vain or empty. So this is something to celebrate that the Bible tells us this because it's real and it gives us real freedom. This is God's grace resulting in beautiful works in the life of a believer. And these are guaranteed by the power of the grace of God in the believer's life. So, if there's confusion regarding salvation, it's because of the watered-down gospel. Today's so-called grace gospel muddies the waters because it allows for inconsistencies between proclaimed faith and actions. It compromises God's grace, supposing it possible that God's grace isn't effective in the lives of some believers, quote-unquote. Again, today's so-called grace gospel muddies the waters because it allows for inconsistencies between proclaimed faith and actions. It compromises God's grace, supposing it possible that God's grace isn't effective in the lives of some quote-unquote believers. But that's like an impossibility, is the point. And that's where the man-made confusion comes in. Because man picks and chooses scriptures and likes to take things out of context, well, now the simple message of consistency between faith and actions is blurred. Really all because of hyper-doctrinalizing, hyper-categorizing. Yet we've been seeing the clarity and consistency of Scripture over the last year even, even in the lives of believers in the Bible, 
when we just keep, keep reading the word in context, we see the consistency between faith and actions. The life of a believer looks a certain way. As you read your Bible, you just see it over and over. And it's beautiful, it's wonderful, because it's there for anybody to see. So there shouldn't be confusion regarding salvation, but man has jumbled things up quite a bit. In 1 Corinthians 14.33, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. So if there is confusion regarding salvation or its effects, then something's wrong or something's missing. There really shouldn't be. Again, we saw this on Sunday. Satan, the great attorney, has done a great job at turning so-called Christianity into a three-ring circus. People are fundamentally confused about grace and therefore about Jesus himself and God's plan for salvation. What's the confusion? That God's grace can possibly just go halfway. That Jesus can save someone without actually delivering them from slavery to sin. That God's grace says he'll save you, but still let you be a slave without rescue, rescuing you, as he promised. Does that sound like God's grace in action? So it's actually an insult to God's grace. And this leads to mistaking Jesus himself as Lord and Savior. On the board, if a person's confused about salvation, doesn't it stand to reason that a person will be confused about the Savior? Some are so confused about the Savior, they have called out the Gospel of Paul, which is presumably, presumably the Gospel of grace. They've called this out as something different than the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is wrong. I mean, think about this. <laughs> Jesus' own words don't fit in the watered-down gospel. Jesus' own words don't fit comfortably at all in the watered-down gospel. What he said himself and what he even demanded doesn't fit into contemporary Christianity's gospel. So what do people do? They don't understand it, maybe out of confusion, maybe out of fear, maybe from hyper-categorizing things in the Bible. They go to Paul's letters most of the time to avoid the conviction of Jesus' own words on what true faith looks like and how grace always accomplishes its task in a believer's life. Inevitable results in a believer's life. And so they go to the epistles, the letters in the New Testament, as the source of truth, in a sense, putting the cart before the horse. On the board, the epistles support and complement the gospel given by Jesus himself, not the other way around. What a shame to minimize our Lord's own words and declarations regarding His gospel, putting them in the background to keep an accommodating version of the gospel, one that isn't offensive, one that doesn't challenge people, one that doesn't really make people make a decision, but just says, take Jesus in on the side, just in case, and keep doing what you want. That's not... <laughs> 
Jesus' words. So again, the epistles are for support and, and complement of the gospel itself that Jesus gave, not the other way around. What a shame to minimize our Lord's own words and declarations regarding his gospel, putting them in the background to keep an accommodating version of the gospel. As Pastor mentioned Sunday, many people don't realize that Paul and the other writers of the New Testament were often needing to correct false doctrines or defend attacks on the Lord's gospel. The Spirit on Sunday gave us the analogy of a surgeon who needs to go into the ugly innards of sick hearts and carefully carve out the diseased belief systems that have eroded the true gospel. I mean, think about it. In really a short period of time, from the life of Jesus himself to when the writers of the New Testament, the, the apostles mostly wrote the letters, I mean, we're talking a, a couple decades, if that. And the gospel was already being skewed, attacked, uh, changed, uh, distorted. And that's what the uh, New Testament writers, the uh, writers of the letters, were doing. They were trying to get back to the Lord's gospel. While the writers of these letters did the work of spiritual surgeons, we ourselves don't have to be surgeons to become saved, thank God. But they were just cutting out the cancer so people could see clearly. In all the churches, there were different problems, different lies that were being believed. And the apostles, including Paul, were trying to help people see clearly the unadulterated, perfect, bold gospel of Jesus Christ. As came out in last week's lessons, anyone can read their Bibles in context and come to salvation. Anyone can do that if they keep it in context. Anyone can see what the Lord was saying about saving faith and what it looks like in somebody's life and how true believers will follow him. That's all like plain as day as you just keep reading in context. As I know many of you are discovering, and I'm really enjoying the whole process, the way he's showing us these things, it's right there for the taking. If we stay humble and we don't try to make the Word of God fit what we want or hyper-doctrinalize. So while the apostles had certain attacks to battle, It was to clear the way, again, from the distractions and misdirections of Satan in the churches. The mistake seen in many churches is going to these letters to find and discover the gospel when they should be going to the source himself. So, you know, think about it this way. Satan is saying, let's create some hyper-doctrinalizing, hyper-categorizing, so we can get people away from the Messiah's own words. That will be a sneaky victory for us, the kingdom of darkness. Who knows how far away from the gospel it could take them, putting the cart before the horse. I mean, ask yourselves, how could the gospel of Jesus Christ not include his own words? I mean, now it seems foolish to us, but it's still being promoted a lot in the churches today. Unwittingly, They've put the Lord on the back burner. It's crazy to, to say that. 
you know, people that say they love the Lord, that, that many of them are Christians, but unwittingly they put the Lord on the back burner when he's the one whose words we should be cling, clinging to. Just as he tells us to go teach others all that he taught. So now back to the real issue in salvation, which came up on Sunday regarding the great perversion. That salvation is from hell, quote-unquote. Salvation is not really from hell. The truth is that grace saves or delivers a person from sin. Sin's the problem. Sin's what's in the way of us having peace with God. Sin is the real issue, not hell. Hell is a destination for those remaining in their sins because they rejected God's grace. As we heard on Sunday, God's grace includes all aspects of deliverance from sin, spiritual death, and its dominion over all humans born into it. That's what God's grace includes. A victory over all those things. Turn in your Bibles to Romans 8, verse 30. Let's see this verse again that we saw on Sunday. <clears throat> Again, God's grace doesn't come up shy, you know. In fact, it's perfect, and it, it accomplishes what it, it is sets out to accomplish. Romans 8.30. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Notice God's work starts as early as conceivably possible and ends as late as conceivably possible. God's grace regarding our salvation from sin goes from eternity past all the way to eternity future, from predestination to glorification. That's God's grace. All done. He started on it before creation. He, he finishes it after the earth is destroyed and there's a new heavens and a new earth. It literally is endless. But that's what God's grace has done for us. Before we were even created, God had already completed our salvation from sin and death. So again, on the board, the great perversion is that salvation is from hell. The truth is that grace saves or delivers a person from sin. Sin is the real issue, not hell. Hell is a destination for those remaining in their sins because they rejected God's grace. And as a result of this perversion, many have believed that grace is merely a free trip to heaven and their gratitude should be focused on the fact that they won't be going to hell. In reality, God's grace is much, much greater than that. It actually has the power of saving us from Slavery to sin now. That's what it does in the life of a surrendered person. A person who humbles themselves before the Lord and trusts in Him for salvation. That's what grace does in the here and now. So, true grace on the board again. The Lord is able not only to pluck you from eternity in hell, but more importantly from the throes of spiritual death, as all are born in sin. 
1 Corinthians 15, 22. His grace delivers you completely from the sovereignty of sin and takes you to the sovereignty of righteousness. It's impossible to remain in sin and claim Jesus as Lord as these are mutually exclusive realities. On the board again, 1 Corinthians 15, 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. It doesn't say some in Christ will be made alive. Those who are in Christ will all be made alive. As a true believer, sin is no longer your sovereign. And that means it's no longer your king or your ruler. You're no longer under its dominion. Okay? Sin is no longer like your taskmaster with a whip whipping you and keeping you in chains. The Lord has set you free from that bondage and brought you to the sovereignty of his righteousness. You are now under the king of the universe, not the king of sin, the king of the universe, Jesus Christ. You've crossed over from, uh, from sin to his domain and his righteousness. That's what happened to that person that submits, surrenders to Jesus Christ, that repents and says, I can't do this, I need you. That's what happens at that true salvation experience. This is what God does for the believer, that person that surrenders like that. It's a reality, in other words. It's a reality that takes place in the life of believers. I like how it's said in the NIV on the board, on uh, John 5, 24, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. That's what God did for the believer at the moment of salvation. The life of a believer has crossed over. It's been transferred from the kingdom of sin to the kingdom of the Son and righteousness. So you and I as believers now have a beautiful, righteous sovereign over you, a good sovereign. How can anyone not love a master that loves you even though he has total sovereignty over you? And what would we do if we had total sovereignty over somebody else? Abuse it. Right? To I mean, total sovereignty over someone else? The pride that we would live in? But Jesus Christ is like perfect humility. And even though he has total, complete sovereignty over us, he treats us in love and grace and mercy. And because he set us free from such a cruel master, which is sin itself, we want to follow him, if we realize what? He really has done for us. We want to follow him. So we're talking about the sovereignty of Jesus and that believers, true believers, are happy to be under his sovereignty because they have reconciled that he rescued them from sin and certain death. This is where the believer now abides under the sovereignty of Jesus, and he's happy about it. He's grateful for it. 
This is the attitude of a true believer. If he doesn't have this perspective, then something is missing, and he doesn't quite get it yet. Think about it. If there's no appreciation or gratitude for Jesus as Lord and Savior, and someone claims to be a believer, well, something's missing, right? Something's really missing. If there's no gratitude or appreciation for Him as Lord and Savior. And that could be the Spirit Himself that's missing, unfortunately. So as the Spirit's been teaching us on the board, the Gospel is the good news about God's plan to save us from sin. From sin. We are not saved from hell, strictly speaking, as that's not the key problem statement. That's not the thing in our way of peace with God. It's sin. We're not born in hell, for example, but the Bible does say we are born in sin. If we don't accept God's grace, we will die in our sins by our own choice. So the problem statement in John 8, 24 really couldn't be more obvious. Sin is in the way, and it's sin that people need to repent from and turn to Christ for salvation from it. Therefore, the real question we ought to be asking people, we are trying to evangelize, is if you believe that Jesus is the Savior, what is it exactly has he saved you from? And if people say, I don't know, or they say from hell, of course, then maybe there's cause for concern. They don't quite get the problem statement, the thing that's between them and God. I've met people before who say they believe in Jesus, but also don't believe they're sinners. So why do you believe in Jesus? Or what do you believe about Jesus? If he didn't save you from sin, if you're not a sinner, what, what's the uh, attraction to him? What exactly do you believe? Again, it's not if they believe, it's what they believe. That cuts to the heart of salvation. So now, back to the churches. Hyper-focusing on Paul's letters instead of the Lord's own Gospels. Paul, the Gospel, and Grace. While the specifics, and more poignantly, the application of grace, were certainly different, the fundamental premise of grace, especially regarding the gospel of Jesus Christ, never changed. Paul defended grace against outside perversions with the tenacity of a lion because he knew its import to the gospel. That was his ministry, in other words. That was his calling. He had a certain focus and mission because of the distractions of his day. His churches, the ones he planted himself with his own sweat and tears, right? The ones that he created and founded on his missionary trips, they were being led astray from the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And he had to address the lies that had crept in to the churches. So Paul discussed grace from a certain position, looking back to the gospel of Jesus. He taught the grace that Christ lived. Think about that for a minute. Paul taught the grace that Christ lived. And so certain teachers like to go to Paul's letters alone 
for Paul's explanations on grace when the visual aid and the origin of grace is found in Jesus Christ. I mean, Paul made no mistake about this, right? I mean, in the letters, he was always referring back to the Lord Jesus Christ. Always referring back to what he said, what he guided, what he commanded. In the midst of the battles he was fighting. As we've noted in the last couple lessons regarding Jesus, the gospel, and grace, the Bible does not record Jesus in his incarnation actually using the word grace. We don't see it in the four Gospels, him saying that word, okay, literally. But does this mean we ought to suppose the creator of the universe doesn't understand grace? As the Spirit's been teaching us, we ought never hang our hats on word studies in the Bible. We should hang our hats on context. So it's kind of like Jesus didn't have to even use the word grace. He just did it. He lived in it constantly. His actions and love spoke so loudly, he just had to show grace. And it was the apostles who recapped and recounted his grace. And they put it into words. So on the board, learning grace, ask yourselves, who did Jesus' disciples learn grace from, including Paul? Even though Paul didn't walk with him, he was personally taught by him for three years. Jesus taught them all grace. To suggest that Jesus somehow didn't teach grace is to suggest that his own disciples invented it on their own. And of course, that's foolish. They were all harking back to the Savior. They were all going back to Jesus. And also, Jesus sent his Spirit to help us. And specifically, to remind us of all that he said. I love how the Bible, that's kind of popping out to me now in several scriptures. We're, we're being reminded by the Holy Spirit even of what Jesus said. Even in the letters, okay? What Jesus said. The Spirit is reminding us, reminding the apostles of what Jesus said. Just as the Lord said in the Great Commission, go and teach them all that I commanded you. How could the apostles do anything different with that direct command? So this puts clear emphasis on the importance of Jesus' own words and commands. Go uh, again to John 14, 26. We saw this on Sunday, but I want you to see this again before we continue. John 14, 26. I mean, why would the Spirit... <laughs> teach us anything besides what Christ taught. John 14, 26, Jesus said, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Awesome. All that I said to you. That's what he's going to remind you of, even though I'm gone. On the board, the Holy Spirit. Jesus promised his Spirit to his own. That's grace. His Spirit teaches and reminds His disciples of Jesus' words. That's another form of grace. The fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 includes peace. That's another form of grace. The Spirit and Jesus share the same objectives. 
Remember, again, the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Christ. And they are supernaturally one and the same. Turn to Romans 8, verse 5. They are supernaturally one and the same. The Spirit and Christ himself. Romans 8, 5. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it, does not, it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So again on the board, the Spirit, the Gospel, and grace. If you are saved, you are in the Spirit. That's what we just saw in Romans 8, is that two types of people, one in the flesh, one in the Spirit, one in the flesh, one in the Spirit. If you're saved, you're in the Spirit. This is the same Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ in verse 9. This Spirit is a gift to believers, and every gift from above is perfect with no variation or shifting shadow, as James 1.17 tells us. The Spirit will always teach grace wholly and the gospel consistently. If someone's really humble and listening to the Spirit, they will teach grace holy and the gospel consistently. And nobody's perfect. But this is the perfect Spirit we're talking about here. The Spirit of Christ Himself. So again in Romans 8 verse 9, However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Verse 10. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. Notice how clear it is in verse 10. We've been brought from sin and the dominion of sin to righteousness. A new place, a new dominion. There again we see the dramatic change that takes place in the life of a believer, accomplished by the grace of God in salvation. It's God that takes you. You don't take yourself. All you do is humble yourself before the Lord. God takes you from that domain of sin, rescues you from it, and places you under righteousness. The crossover, if you will, has taken place in the person who has humbled himself before Jesus as Lord and Savior. And a new life has begun. You see that? A new life has begun. That's a fact. That is a reality in the life of a believer. So if a new life hasn't begun, there might be a problem. Right? Something new, something different is in that believer now. And it's the Spirit of Christ. So back to Jesus and true grace. Jesus didn't just teach grace. He embodied it. 
He is the representative work of grace in the flesh. He is our prototype and goal concerning our own maturity toward grace. He's our great example. John 1.14, Romans 8.29, Part A. Again on the board, John 1.14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. It's just who He was. He was walking grace in pure form. So again, maybe that's why He never used the word grace. He didn't have to. There's nothing quite like seeing grace in action, is there? Like seeing a guilty sinner forgiven, seeing the lame healed, seeing the poor fed. We could go on and on. And Scripture tells us all the good things Jesus did could not even be contained in writing. Imagine three straight years of walking grace without taking a day off. I mean, and he, you know, he didn't need it day off, he was perfect, but he was pure, he was pure grace. So imagine all the good works he did in three years. There's no substitute for experience, and the apostles got to learn from it firsthand a countless number of times. Turn in your Bibles to John 21, verse 24. The apostles got to learn from the Lord's grace a countless number of times firsthand. As eyewitnesses. And so they wrote about his grace in the letters. John 21, 24. John says, this is the disciple who was testifying to these things. What was John saying there? He was an eyewitness to his grace. I'm testifying of these things that I just wrote this whole book about. And wrote these things. And we know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. If written in detail, all of the Lord's gracious acts, I suppose not even the world itself, think about that statement, would be able to contain the books that would be written. How many sinners, just like try to contemplate this, how many sinners did Jesus touch in some way while he was on earth? With the disciples as eyewitnesses of grace the whole way through. I believe it's an uncountable number, which that verse, verse basically says. So we're talking about grace in action. That was Jesus. In three years, the Lord showed his disciples more grace than he ever could have taught them in a classroom. Jesus embodied grace. His life was God's love, front and center, as alive and active as could be. Their lives were changed forever. The apostles, that is. The disciples, even. Their lives were changed forever. Not because of book knowledge, but because they were shown how to live, how to fish, how to love. seeing grace in action every day by the perfect God-man. And even today, Jesus teaches us through His Word, through the Spirit, and through experience. 
through things that he allows us to go through, both good and bad. He's teaching us grace. His spirit, the spirit of Christ is in you. He's teaching us grace. And through the trials of life, lessons of grace emerge, as I'm sure all of you can testify to some degree. Grace being given and received, maybe at the worst times in your life, you see it. And His Spirit gives us grace every step of the way. If our eyes are open, we see it. Again, regarding grace in action, the believer builds his house on the rock, Jesus himself, following the examples of his grace. The unbeliever, however, builds on the sand, trying his own ways for salvation, relying on self for happiness and even eternal life. Matthew 7, 21 through 27. Turn there. Matthew 7, 21. Again, the believer builds his house on the rock, Jesus himself, following the examples of his grace. The unbeliever builds on the sand, trying his own ways for salvation, relying on self for happiness and even eternal life. These are pictures of the lives of the saved and the unsaved. Someone who truly believes in Jesus as Lord and Savior acts a certain way to some degree, because his heart's been changed by God. And if his heart has been changed by God, he follows the Lord in his ways. He builds his house on the rock. That's what the scriptures say. And look at it in context here in Matthew 7, 21 through 27. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and slammed against that house. And yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew, and slammed against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. I want you to notice in verse 21, it says, He who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven, will enter. And in verse 24, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them. Notice doing and, and acts on them. What, what is that? Does that mean you're working for salvation? No, 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 no. It means this is what the believer does. Someone who truly believes this is what they do. Because they believe the words of Jesus. And that he's true. And so they build a house on the rock because they really believe. And talking about God's grace being sufficient and effective in saving somebody from sin, notice how Paul built. It was by grace that Paul built. 
in 1 Corinthians 3.10 on the board. According to the grace of God, which has, or which, which was given to me, like a master, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds. So again, according to the grace of God, which was given me, I built. It's the power of grace in the life of a believer. So as I pick a place to close here, all believers learn through experience by actually living in and obeying the word of God. The righteous man will live by faith. The believer will walk by faith. That's what a believer does. And therefore, he'll see God's grace in action in his life because God's grace is power. It's not weak. It's not ineffective. It's not unable. And it's given freely to the the believer, the one who surrenders to Christ. So back to the main point on grace as we close, Jesus showed his disciples what grace looked like. And that's why it's his life and his words that we turn to, to properly proclaim his gospel and his grace. So we saw this on Sunday as well. True grace is evidenced through good works. Merely understanding the blueprints of grace is not the same as actually possessing grace and realizing it through experience. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. So we all, by grace through faith, had the opportunity to produce good works in the likeness of Jesus himself. An amazing thing when you think about it. But by grace, he's given us the power to do such things. To imitate his faith. To live in the examples of grace that he showed us. That's the life of the believer, the follower of Jesus Christ. So let's close with one passage in John 14, verse 11. John 14, 11. Jesus said, Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. What does it say? Whoever believes in me, he will do the works that I do. And greater works than these he will do, because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you again for your amazing word and amazing grace acting in our behalf as those who trust your Son for eternal life. We thank you for the clarity of your word in context. We thank you that your word is so consistent, always pairing up faith and actions. 
and that these things are just part of the life of a believer in your son. We're so grateful that grace is acting on our behalf and we have your power so that we can do the works of Christ himself and operate in his grace. Father, please bless us all as we go. Help us bring these truths out to a lost and dying world that needs it so desperately. It's in Christ's precious name we pray, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.